Good morning. Keep your Bible open, would you, to 1 Timothy 2, where we're going to be this morning in our message entitled, What No Creature Could Do, is the title for this morning's message from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. It is, if you've been tracking with us, week number five in this sermon series on the Reformation as we're exploring the great truths of the Reformation, these biblical and reformational truths. This morning we take up the fourth of our five obsessions of extraordinary faith. A couple of weeks ago we kicked off with sola scriptura, scripture alone, then sola gratia, grace alone, last week sola fide, faith alone, and now this week today, solus Christus, Christ alone. S-O-L-U-S-C-H-R-I-S-T-U-S, Solus Christus, Christ alone. You may remember I shared uh, at the start of the sermon series this phrase that really captures what I think is the, the driving force behind the sermon series on the Reformation. It's this, we want to take a, quote, deeper plunge into the meaning of the gospel. But it may be even better to say this, that the series is helping us take, I pray, a deeper plunge into the meaning of Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, because Christ is the key. He is central to our Christian lives. He is, of course, central to the Christian faith. Solus Christus, right, Christ alone, is simply a way of saying that Jesus is at the absolute center of the Christian faith. It's what we're trying to affirm with solus Christus, Christ alone. I like the way theologian Michael Reeves puts it. He says this, quote, the center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity, listen, this is not an idea, a system, or a thing. It's not even, he says, the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ, the person of Christ. Now, of course, at the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church was not denying the centrality of Jesus for Christianity. They understood that Christ was the key to Christianity. They were not denying the centrality or uniqueness of Christ, at least not in their doctrine. But as I think we all know and recognize, we can, check it out, we can believe better than we behave. You know what I'm talking about? And that was what was happening at the time of the Reformation. The church was believing better than it was behaving, and so practically speaking, the whole of late medieval Catholic, the whole late medieval Catholic system of salvation as it had developed over the years was a massive compromise, practically speaking, of solus Christus, of Christ alone. Why do I say that? I say that because of what had developed in the Catholic tradition. The importance of priestly mediation, a priest standing between you and God. The development of the importance of acts of penance, to make up through your works for the wrongdoings you've done. Of course, the purchasing of indulgences, which made Martin Luther so irate, and the working off of your leftover sins in that plain, painful place called purgatory. 
You see, all these things had developed in late medieval Catholicism at the time of the Reformation, and they were a practical denial. Like these practices, these traditions were a practical denial of the sufficiency of Christ alone. Not a denial at the theological level, but a denial at the practical level. And let me say as an aside that I suspect some of you grew up in churches that believed better than they behaved in just these sorts of ways. I suspect some of you grew up in church settings where the subtle and maybe the not-so-subtle message you got Sunday after Sunday was that Jesus wasn't enough. No one, I'm sure, said that from the pulpit. You knew Jesus was good, you knew Jesus was important, but you kind of came away as a young person with the suspicion that Jesus wasn't totally sufficient. It was at least the impression you got. Because you came away knowing that you needed to act in certain sorts of ways, you needed to think in just certain sorts of ways, you needed to hang out with just these certain sorts of people, you needed to be involved in just these certain sorts of activities and definitely not do these sorts of things or date girls who do those sorts of things because if you do, Jesus can't help you. A practical denial of Christ alone. And I'm not just thinking of those who grew up in the Catholic tradition. I'm thinking of those who grew up in the Protestant traditions. And it happened there as well. And of course, all of us, whether you grew up in a church culture or not, we now live in the modern culture where we're affirming the sufficiency of Christ. I mean, I don't know, that makes sense to people. And if they begin to track with what it is you're talking about, you're talking about the unique exclusivity and sufficiency of Jesus Christ among all the other gods and religions in the world. I mean, if they track with what it is you're actually saying and the church is saying, it would be viewed, would it not, as either the height of arrogance or the depth of ignorance. One or the other. Massively politically incorrect to talk about Christ alone. Now, if folks like Martin Luther and the other reformers were serious about anything, you know what they were serious about? They were serious about the sufficiency of Christ. And if they were committed to anything, you know what they were committed to? They were committed to the utter uniqueness of Christ. And how they come by that commitment? Well, they got it, of course, from the Bible. And if Scripture is serious about anything, it's serious about the sufficiency of Christ. And listen, if the Bible is bold on any point, it is bold on this point, the utter uniqueness of Christ. You see it right there in the passage it was read for us just a moment ago. Look there in your Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 in particular, look there, it's all there as plainly stated as could possibly be. Solus Christus, Christ alone, in the compass of just two verses here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul writes this, for there is one God 
And there is one mediator, Christ alone, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There's only one God, not 10,000. And there's only one mediator, not 10 million. And we should add, this mediator is not your mom or dad, regardless of how faithful they are, or your pastor, or your priest, or your coach, or your counselor, or even your praying grandmother, and I love praying grandmothers, are not your mediator. It is the man, Christ, Jesus, he and he alone. He alone has given himself as a ransom for all, something no one else has done, no one else could do. And so you see, y'all, when we talk about solus Christus, when we talk about Christ alone, we are talking about the utter uniqueness of who Christ is, his identity, and what Christ has done, his work for us, utterly unique, And listen, totally sufficient. Nothing needs to be added. Christ plus uh uh-uh. Nothing else needs to be added. And this is exactly what Scripture affirms. You can see it on every page of the New Testament, all over the place. And it would be fun for the rest of the sermon this morning to just rattle off text after text after text after text in an endless array of passages that, that make precisely this point. By the end of it, you might even go away and get a Solus Christus tattoo, right? But listen, what I'd like to do instead, rather than just sort of elaborate on a bunch of texts, is explain, listen to me, explain the logic of Christ alone. In fact, what I want to do is I want to enforce the logic come at you with the logic of why it is that the earliest Christians were so persuaded of, in the biblical writings, the biblical teaching, so persuaded of Christ alone, solus Christus. What is the logic of that? What's the rationale? What is the thinking? Or let's put it this way. Why did the earliest Christians insist that salvation was found in Christ, in Christ alone? Was that because there was no other religious options at the time? Of course not. There were lots and lots. The the earliest Christians lived in a more religiously pluralized world than you and I did. And so how did they become so convinced that, like, Jesus was the only way? And that wasn't an easy thing to affirm. It wasn't like, hey, that's pretty cool back in the first century, but it's not so cool in the 21st century. I mean, it wasn't very cool back then either. (laughs) How did they come by that view? was the logic that drove them there in the teaching of the Bible and the witness of Jesus. Why? Christ alone. To explain the logic of Christ alone, here's what I want to do. I want to share with you, kind of keeping with the logic theme, three premises, or if you don't want to go down that path, think of it as three pillars, three pillars that support solus Christus or the idea of Christ 
alone. Three biblical pillars that are reaffirmed at the time of the Reformation. I want to understand why it is that Christians are so keen on Jesus and Jesus alone. Here it is in three steps, three pillars, three premises of the logic of solus Christus, Christ alone. And here they are. Let me give them to you up front. First, the seriousness of sin. Seriousness of sin. Second, the worthiness of God. And third, the uniqueness of Christ. Each an essential part of the logic of Christ alone. Take any one of them out, and you don't have Christ alone. But with these three in place, you are compelled, compelled to affirm that Christ alone is our only hope of salvation. Three pillars. Here's the first one, calling it the seriousness of sin. Let me put it this way, very simply. Sin is a big deal. My sin is a big deal. Like your sin is a big deal. Like our sin is a big deal. Like the sin of, of the village we live in, that's a big deal. And the city we live in is a big deal. And the nation we live in is a big deal. And the world's sin is a big deal. But sadly, though, you know as well as I know that we don't tend to see our sin as a big deal. At least not most of the time. We are so conditioned by sin, both our own sin and the sin of other people, that it just doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. Very easy, isn't it, to overlook sin, downplay it, explain it away, excuse it as only normal or simply human. Hard to see it as the big deal that it is. And I think part of our problem is that we tend, listen, we tend to see our sin only in relation to other human beings. And then we judge the seriousness of our sin in light of the severity of its consequences on other people. Are you tracking with me there? Seeing our sin only in relation, you might say horizontally, in relation to other people. So the seriousness of sin, we, we tend to only see when it has severe consequences on other people. So if you open fire on a crowd of concert goers, then your sin is horribly serious, which of course it is. It is damnably serious, obvious to everyone. But if you envy your neighbor or ignore the grace of God in your life or resent what someone has said or done to you or mock, secretly mock a friend who has some weakness, these aren't such big deals. They're just little slights, little offenses, little sins, the kinds of things that we all have and do each and every day. Not such a big deal. But let me ask you, what happens when you see your sin not only in relation to its impact on other human beings, but when you see it in relation to God? What happens? Not simply is that which may harm someone else, but is that which offends and is an affront to an infinitely holy and good God. What happens then to our perception of our sin 
Not viewed only horizontally, but viewed vertically. Not merely in relation to its impact on ourselves or other people, but its impact on God. The Bible, interestingly, has two images, two primary images it used to talk about sin. In the Old Testament, it views and conceives of sin. The metaphor is as a weight that we bear. It's the Old Testament. The burden that we bear, the burden of sin that is then placed on a scapegoat sent out of the camper, an animal that is sacrificed. It is a burden that is relieved through sacrifice. That's the Old Testament. What happens in the New Testament is a kind of adjustment of the basic metaphor we see all over in the New Testament from a weight that we bear to a debt that has to be repaid. You find it in the teaching of Jesus, don't you? The Lord's Prayer. Think about the Lord's Prayer. You may have noticed how Jesus works with his metaphor of sin as debt. It must be repaid or forgiven. So the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let me ask you this question. How great is our debt to God because of our sin? How much do we owe God because of our sin? If like each sin was like a dollar, right, how many stacks of hundreds would we need to pay God back? Well, let me put it this way. If God is infinite in his glory and beauty, then isn't our sin infinitely offensive to God? And isn't it a crime against an infinite being? So that if you follow the logic, our debt to this infinite being would itself be infinite. And how could we possibly repay an infinite debt we owe an infinitely awesome being only with an infinite amount of time that would have to go on for all eternity? Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable, you may know this parable of the unforgiving servant where we see servants who can't pay their debts. This is in the parable. Jesus is using it as a, as, as a parable about forgiveness, and, and they can't repay their debts, and so they are thrown into prison until they have paid their debt, Jesus says. It's our situation apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we'd be thrown into prison until we paid our debt, which means as a finite creature with an infinite offense in debt to God, it would go on forever and we never would get done paying the debt. And so you see, listen, hell is eternal. Hell is eternal. Because sin is just that serious. It is an infinite offense with infinite consequences. That's what we mean when we talk about the seriousness of sin. Seen not merely in relation to others, but seen primarily in relation to God. Utterly 
serious. The seriousness of sin. That's pillar number one of the logic of Christ alone. Pillar number two is this, the worthiness of God. The worthiness of God. And the basic idea here is that God is worthy. God is worth something, and the something is a big something. God is awesome in his beauty and his glory and his grace. And so God, listen, by just virtue of his stunning being, deserves our adoration and our worship and our ascribing worth to his magnificence and majesty and beauty. The worthiness of God has a demand on creatures just by virtue of being created by God. We have that burden, we have that debt that we owe God as our creator. The worthiness of God. You know, if you've been tracking with the sermon series I've used on a number of occasions, this phrase that has been coined by this sociologist named Christian Smith, it's an it's a intriguing and wonderful phrase. Perhaps you picked it up by now. It's what he calls the de facto religion of most Americans. You remember what the phrase is? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's a good description of American religion or spirituality. But here's the deal with moralistic, therapeutic deism. What it does is it distorts God's identity and then domesticates God's nature so that God is, well, he's mostly like us. He's not wholly other. He's a lot like we are. He's pretty nice and pretty cool, pretty congenial. Bottom line, this whole thing makes God look small and insignificant and not worth much. Moralistic therapeutic deism. I like the way Christian Smith in his book Soul Searching talks about how most Americans view God. Listen to this quote. In short, in sum, listen to this. God is something like a combination of divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process, unquote. Cosmic therapist, Divine Butler. How many of you watch Downton Abbey? Come on, come on. I know there's more of you than that. What is Christian Smith saying? He's saying that like the majority of Americans see God as like Carson from Downton Abbey. Little Bell shows up in a very discreet fashion, cares for all of your needs, and then slips away without you noticing or intruding any further. further. Or if you haven't watched Downton Abbey, then maybe this will help... God, for many Americans, like Dr. Phil, right, who used to be Oprah's sidekick back in the good old days. Divine Butler, like Carson, or cosmic therapist like Dr. Phil. A domesticated view of God entirely. Where maybe he's nice to have around, but there is no, like, demand on creatures from the worth of God. But of course, we meet a very different God when we turn to the Bible, don't we? In fact, we see a very different response when we look at the people in the Bible and when they meet God. Like what goes on to in their hearts and lives and minds when they are confronted with the worthiness of God. You remember the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, 
where we read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. This is not a cosmic therapist or a divine butler. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, the seraphim covered his face. With two, covered his feet, his creatureliness. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's a picture of the worthiness of God. That God, y'all, you see, is infinitely worthy. We owe God an infinite debt of worship simply because God is who God is. The infinite beauty of His holiness, of His grace, of His love, these place on you and me an infinite debt, which is why heaven goes on forever and ever, and we will never pay out the debt we owe God in worship. We'll never get to a place like a million eons from now, we'll be like, God, I think we've kind of completed the task. It'll go on for a ceaseless number of eternities because the debt we owe the worthiness of God is infinite because of who God is. And so you see the seriousness of sin and the worthiness of God, the seriousness of sin, it is an infinite offense against God and God is worthy. God is worthy of our worship, infinitely worthy of our worship. Even apart from our countless sins, he'd still be worthy of our worship. But of course, we have sinned. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we have to confess, listen, that we have stolen something from God. Something of his honor, his dignity, his glory. Do you think of sin that way, that you have stolen? I have stolen something from God and I now stand in God's debt. Every single one of us, every person that has ever lived. And of course, we can't repay the debt because it's infinite. Only God can make such a payment. Only an infinite being can make an infinite payment. No finite creature can do that. Listen, only God can do that. But listen as well, only a human being should make that payment. Because God is not the guilty party. Human beings are the guilty ones. And so what is the solution? If God is the only one who can, but man is the only one who should, where do we go from there? Man needs to repay, but only God can afford it. Where do we go from there? We go to the third pillar in the logic of Christ alone, and it is this, the uniqueness of Christ. The God-man, 
who dies in your place and mine, the perfect, sinless God-man who is the only solution to our sin problem. Which, of course, is exactly, look again in your Bibles at 1 Timothy chapter 2, exactly what our passage says God has done in Christ. Look there, verses 5 and 6. You see the logic of Christ alone there in verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, verse 5 says, and there's one mediator between God and man. And here it is, the man, Christ Jesus. You see what Paul is affirming. One mediator who is whom the man, a human being, not an angel, not a divinity floating in the sky, the man, Christ. Not Jesus Christ, like Jesus' first name, Christ's last name, but the man, Christ, God's anointed one. An affirmation of his divinity. The man who is God, who has a name, and his name, and a story, and an identity, and his name, and story, and identity, of course, is Jesus, this God-man, utterly unique, y'all, in his identity, utterly unique in his work, utterly unique in his sacrifice, an all-sufficient sacrifice, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus. Of course, if you go around affirming that, talking about that boldly in the public square, posting it on Facebook if you have people besides your closest friends reading your Facebook posts, boldly declaring Christ alone in our day and age, you will be viewed, as I've already said, as a, this will be viewed as the height of arrogance or the depth of ignorance. It will be politically incorrect to the max. Because as you know and I know, there's huge pressure, huge pressure in our culture today to say that basically all faiths teach the same thing and that no one faith has a leg up on any other faith. Huge pressure to say that and affirm that. To that view, let me simply say this very candidly, that while we as Christians ought to embody humility in the way we interact with others and we ought to embrace a kind of democratic tolerance of diversity, we must continue to insist on the utter uniqueness of Christ. We must continue to boldly profess what the apostles boldly professed, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved, the utter uniqueness of Christ. We've got to boldly confess it and declare it and embody it and live it. We don't need to be mean about it, by the way. Don't need to be proud or prideful about it. Don't need to be condescending or superior to others because of it, but we do need to be clear about it. We need to be clear that there is salvation in no one else. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Oprah, not Dr. Phil, not Trump or Obama or Lady Gaga or Lecrae, not Piper or Keller or Warren or Stanley or Wilson, not even in Abraham or Moses or Joshua or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Peter or Paul or James or John, but only in Jesus. 
Because Jesus himself put it this way. You want to hear it from the horse's mouth. Solus Christus from the horse's mouth. Check it out. Before Luther got it, Jesus got it. And this is the way Jesus put it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the logic of Solus Christus from the horse's mouth. Jesus believed. Don't make any mistake about it. Jesus believed in Christ alone. <laughs> he understood his own uniqueness. Solus Christus. And so you see the logic. You lay hold of the logic of solus Christus, of Christ alone, the seriousness of sin, the worthiness of God, the uniqueness of Christ. Here's what I want to do now. I want to just ask in the remaining time that we have, I want to pivot a little bit. I want to ask, what happens when you lay hold of that? Or better yet, what happens when that, check it out, lays hold of you? What does a commitment to Christ alone do in the life of a follower of Christ? What change might it affect in your life? How does it impact the way you live your life? Let me offer just five brief observations about what happens when the sufficiency and uniqueness of Christ lays hold of a person. I'm just going to kind of point and gesture and commend these ways of thinking to you for discussion in your small groups or around the dinner table this evening or throughout this week. Here are just five all-too-brief observations about what happens to a life when Christ alone gets a hold of you. The first thing is this. The logic of Christ alone causes us to prioritize worship, to prioritize worship. When Christ and Christ alone is the hope of your salvation, it has a way of like focusing your life into a life of worship. You find yourself eager to adore the Savior when you realize the infinite debt he has paid for you, for your life, for your salvation, for your eternal joy. If Christ did it only in part, then maybe you could share a little worship with some other folks, but since Christ has paid the debt in full, the worship of Christ becomes miraculously, marvelously our main thing. The logic of Christ alone prioritizes worship in the life of the follower of Jesus. But you know what else it does? The second thing is it, it does this. It radicalizes freedom. Do you hear me? It radicalizes freedom. Jesus put it this way. So if the Son sets you free, Jesus says, you will be free indeed. The indeed at the end is the radicalizing of freedom, not partially free, like the sun sets you free, you're, you're kind of almost free. Not partially free from, check it out, your guilt, your shame, your condemnation. Not mostly free from your past, from your past sins, your past mistakes. Not almost free from other people's expectations or desires for your life or demands on you or shoulds or have-tos or other kinds of rules, but radically free because of Jesus. For freedom, Christ has set us free, Paul says. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Radicalizes our freedom because of the sufficiency of what Christ has done. Third gesturing at, a, at an observation is this. The logic of Christ alone, check it out, galvanizes discipleship. Galvanizing is like, Firing something and making it steel and solid. 
When our exclusive focus is on Christ, we make a stronger commitment to follow Christ. Our faith and our following Christ is galvanized like steel that is sent through the fire. Because when it's Christ alone, no other options for salvation, no other options for eternal joy and life, then we take it much more seriously when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Christ alone. Solus Christus makes us serious disciples of Jesus. The fourth observation is this. The logic of Christ alone you know what it does? It energizes evangelism. Energizes evangelism. You want to know what the marks of the early church was? They were busy about sharing the good news of Jesus with people. I mean, take the Apostle Paul, for instance. Ten, basically, roughly 10 years of his life, he traveled all around what is modern-day Syria, Turkey, Greece, and Italy, and says he basically had evangelized all those areas, those four modern-day countries, all that span. Scholars think he traveled something like 10,000 miles in the span of about 10 years. And why did he do that? Because there are lots of other ways to get saved, and Paul just thought Jesus was cool, and so he wanted to go hand out Jesus baseball cards to people? No, but because he was super convinced that there is salvation in no one else apart from Christ. Solus Christus, energizing evangelism, energizing mission, energizing outreach. It gives us our missional mandate as a people and as a church, Solus Christus does it, energizes evangelism. Fifthly, finally, and again, all too briefly, let me say this. The logic of Christ alone, you know what it does? It catalyzes love. That's what it does. It catalyzes love. When Christ alone is your focus and when you take in all that Christ is for you, all that Christ has done for you, then you know what? You cannot help but love others with the love with which God has loved you in the person of Christ. It catalyzes love. Paul put it so beautifully and so simply in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, quote, For the love of Christ controls us. It catalyzes love because we have concluded this, Paul says, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might, not lo might no longer live for themselves, but for him for their, who for their sake died and was raised. Christ alone, you see this commitment, the logic of Christ alone makes you a better lover of God and not insignificantly, it makes you a better lover of other people as well. It catalyzes love. You know, in each of these sermons, I have tried to include something from the life of Luther or a quote of Luther's. In fact, for the title for each one of the sermons thus far has been something that Luther has said, and I've adapted and sort of framed the sermon around and made the title. I have not mentioned, you perhaps have picked up, anything about Luther or quoted Luther yet in the sermon, but I would like to close with a delicious quote from Luther, the father of the Reformation. 
It's not because Luther is some big authority we've got to bow down to, because Luther, at least in certain respects, had a keen eye for the heart of the gospel. And this is what Luther says. It's a lengthy quote, and it has in the middle of the quote the, the phrase that I used for the title this morning, what no creature could do. You're tracking with the logic of Christ alone, what no creature could do, but only the God-man could do. Luther writes this. Because an eternal, unchangeable sentence of condemnation has passed upon sin, for God cannot and will not regard sin with favor, but his wrath abides upon it eternally and irrevocably. Redemption was not possible with a ransom of some precious worth as to atone for sin, to assume the guilt, pay the price of wrath, and thus abolish sin. This no creature was able to do, Luther says. No creature was able to do this. There was no remedy except for God's only Son to step, listen to this phrase, to step into our distress and himself become man, to take upon himself the load of our awful and eternal wrath and make his own body and blood a sacrifice for sin. And so he did out of the immeasurably great mercy and love toward us giving himself up and bearing the sentence of unending wrath and death. You see, all what no creature could do, God in Christ did on the cross. Solus Christus, Christ alone, is all about affirming that there is no one like Jesus, utterly unique in his identity, utterly unique in his work, without precedent in what he offers, and totally sufficient, totally sufficient, nothing to add to his work for you, for me, for every one of us, and for the entire world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful For the gift of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, who stands in the gap, the one mediator between God and man. And we confess that we will never plumb the depths of what Jesus has done for us on the cross in taking our sin upon himself, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And bearing the full weight of your wrath, crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We will never in all eternity plumb the full depths of that mystery that has brought us salvation. But we're delighted because of what Jesus has done and faith in him to anticipate an unceasing eternity of moments where we can worship and praise and adore you, Father. Thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the sufficiency of his life. May we live in light of it. May it catalyze love for you and love for others. For we pray this, Christ, in your precious and great name. Amen.